What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. First, a reading from the Gospel of Eastwood, chapter 16, verse 92. It's a hell of a thing, killing a man. Take away all he's got, and all he's ever gonna have. The Gospel of Eastwood has been a hot topic recently with the divisive American Sniper, a surprise award season success. This week, we go back a couple of decades and back to the mythic Old West for a sacred cow review of Eastwood's best picture winning, Unforgiven. Helping us handicap this year's Oscars, the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips. We'll share our picks for who will win and who should win. That and more. Hell, Josh, I thought we weren't radio hosts no more. We're farmers. Ahead on Film Spotting. This episode of Film Spotting is supported by Shutterstock.com. With over 2 million high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For new accounts, take 20% off only footage clips. Go to Shutterstock.com and use offer code FILM215. We're also presented once again by Mubi.com, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Josh, currently playing at Mubi, Ganja and Hess. This is the original left-field exploitation film. I remember film that one. That Spike Lee's new Kickstarter release, The Sweet Blood of Jesus, is based on. This was part of our exploitation marathon discussed on the show on episode 427. A very weird part of that marathon. <laughs> Absolutely. Also, Mubi is premiering The Girlfriend Experience, the Steven Soderbergh digital experiment. That was reviewed on episode 259 of Film Spotting. Why not debut The Girlfriend Experience, a movie starring Sasha Gray on Valentine's Day? Mubi very much into digital era Soderbergh as I am, but also because they apparently have a pretty weird sense of humor. They've also got an international lineup of rare Berlinale shorts that all won the short film Golden Bear at that festival. That going on now as well. Been following the tweets of our various colleagues in Berlin, Josh. Maybe someday we'll get a chance to attend that festival. Add it to the list. Remember, every day movies curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only four ninety nine a month. And of course, you can use their mobile apps to download films to watch offline. Our listeners can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Filmspotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Filmspotting. You're listening to Film Spotting in an attempt to avoid the red carpet spectacle and the paparazzi. We're throwing our Oscar party a week early. I just couldn't find the right dress. I don't know about you, Josh. Well, I'm going to do like they did at the Grammys. I'm going to change outfits between every Love pick. So, yeah, <laughs> keep watching. We're going to be here a while. We've got our picks for who will win and who should win the big prizes at the 2015 Academy Awards. That's later in the show, helping us to screw up your ballot. Surely, our good friend, Mr. Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. Michael, great to have you back. It's been a little while. Thanks, fellas. Uh, I'm bringing tonight my rock-solid 28% prediction uh, uh, percentages. I think that's better than mine. <laughs> yeah, I think I was going to say it beats us. So before we get to our picks for this year, we're going to take a trip way back to the Oscar ceremony of 1993 for our Sacred Cow review of Unforgiven. She don't like it much, does she? You riding off with me. Sally? She gave me the evil eye. Well, you know, Sally's engine... 
Means it ain't over friendly, Will. I don't blame her. I ain't gonna hold it against her. She knew me back then. She knew what no good son of a bitch I was. She just ain't allowing that I've changed. She don't realize I ain't like that no more. Well, you know, Will. I ain't the same, Ned. Claudia, she straightened me up. Cleared me of drinking whiskey and all. Just because we're going on this killing, that don't mean I'm going to go back to being the way I was. I just need the money. Get a new start for them youngsters. Yeah. Clint Eastwood was a Hollywood icon in 1992. He already directed some 15 features and starred in countless others going back to the 1960s. But he was not yet an Oscar-anointed Hollywood icon. That would change with Unforgiven, which earned nine Academy Award nominations, three for Clint, and won four of them, including Best Picture and Best Director. Eastwood's tale of a reformed gun-for-hire who gets pulled back into Dirty Harry business was largely seen as an artful summation and thoughtful commentary on his career up to that point. Michael, in your Tribune review of American Sniper, frustratingly mixed, by the way, so neither (laughs) Team Adam nor Team Josh can claim you for that one, you put Unforgiven... The Bridges of Madison County, and Letters from Iwo Jima in the top tier of Eastwood-directed pictures. We asked listeners to do that sort of ranking in a recent film spotting poll. We offered them these titles to choose from. Bird, Letters from Iwo Jima, Million Dollar Baby, Mystic River, The Outlaw Josie Wales, Unforgiven, and then also offered the option of Other. Here's how it came out. Bird was in last place with 1%. Deservedly. The Outlaw Josie Wales received only 5%. Other, the catch-all category, was there with 6%. And then a couple bunched tightly together here. Letters from Iwo Jima on your list, 10%. Million Dollar Baby, 12%. Mystic River, 14%. But running away with it was Unforgiven with 52% of the vote. Having revisited Unforgiven for this discussion, Michael, would you say listeners got it right? Does Unforgiven stand as Eastwood's best? And maybe a more interesting question with regards to American Sniper is this. How does Unforgiven look now in light of the movies Eastwood has made in the 20 years since? Looks really good. I, <laughs> that's my short answer. It was it was it was fascinating seeing it again, first time in a long, long time. I hadn't recommitted to it in in, in years and years, and I, I think because I've always been and I probably always will be ambivalent about Eastwood's slaughter icon image and his his reputation and the. Um, the kind of adoration that he generates among so many millions of, of movie fans of all tastes and all everything. There's something about. It. I hope to. I hope to sort it out with you guys tonight. Okay, and then our 50 minute hour will be up. <laughs> um, but but I, I've always been very ambivalent about the the impact his image has had on the popular culture. I kind of detest uh, the Dirty Harry franchise in particular. Uh, you know, I think American Sniper is a different story because. I think it's got some very fine scenes in it, uh, but I'm, I'm fundamentally at odds with a lot of what he's trying to do or, I think, dodging in that film, frankly. Hmm. Uh, Unforgiven is a different story. I think it's, it's a, it, is, it is a very comfortable fit for Eastwood as an actor, limited as he is. I think he would be the first to acknowledge that he's a limited actor, um, but he is so comfortably inside this role of someone who used you know uh, you know former raging alcoholic uh, mass murderer whatever you want to call him but also kind of a a holy saintly avenging angel 
he makes sense in the Western landscape. That's point A, okay? Point B is this script by David Webb Peoples is really good. Yeah. It's really good. And it keeps, the, the violent as that film is, it didn't really, it certainly didn't alienate any of his Western fan base. But what I think it did do is pull some of us ambivalence uh, with the T uh, in and make it, it kind of forces to reconsider what Eastwood means and what these myths of the Old West about, you know, justice with a gun and an eye for an eye and all the rest of it. I think the film, because the film takes at its best, it takes the the business and the cost of killing for a living seriously and shows you the effects of it and how it really it may not be the answer to much, but uh, it tends to lead more to a daisy chain of, mm-hmm. of misery. Uh, I, I don't know. that That's, you know, along with Gene Hackman, which is a fant- probably the best single performance I've ever seen in an Eastwood picture, uh, that all the, all of which really made it kind of a rich experience the first time and and worth revisiting. I still think it's four fifths of a terrific movie, not five fifths. <laughs> so you would say though that it's it's more helpful than not in wrestling with this ambivalence that continues. It sounds like with his films to this day is, yeah. is Unforgiven maybe one of those points where you feel like you can get your arms around it a little bit more. I can. I, I, I just simply because I it's the movie's a little less in love with this solitary avenging angel figure. I mean, I mean he revisited it all the time in Pale Rider and Josie Wales and High all Plains this. Drifter. High Plains Drifter. Exactly, Leone, Leone, you know, cemented it early on in the '60s. You know, this image and why why he was a star in the first place. I think what happens with so many movie stars is they become, accidentally or on purpose, they become interesting actors later, well after their movie stardom. And I, I think by this point in the early '90s, Eastwood had become a much more effective actor than he was even just a decade earlier, and. I'll give him this. He he's an old style Hollywood classicist in many ways. I think in this case it just means um, if you're cynical, it means shooting the script at hand and not editorializing a, a lot visually when you're dealing with it. But there's kind of a brute force and also kind of a plain spoken visual language at work here. It's also the you know the film is very kind of interestingly edited. It's 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 all his old gang. You know the production designer Henry Bubstead and the, the editor Joel Cox. But there's something much more percussive and kind of nervous about the editing in Unforgiven. I had forgotten that. And it's also got an unpredictable sense of humor, the fact that this genial one-minute psychopathic, the next kind of awful sheriff played by Gene Hackman, is always up, you know, on this ill-fated construction project, yeah. building a house. Leaky you know? roof. And, that's, and I, I love that moment where he's, you know, he's about to die, and, and he's just, all I can think of is, but I was building a house. Uh-huh. You know? And I mean, there's, there's just a very peculiar sense of humor at work here that I think works, and one of the most startling moments in it, I think, and then I'll shut up for a while, is uh, we all know, look, we all know the poster image of American Sniper, right? And I've, it's, that, it's that enormous, the biggest American flag ever kind of like in, you know, enveloping the Bradley Cooper character. Yes, it makes it's clearly an effective selling point for that picture. There's a comparable image in Unforgiven that I completely forgot mm-hmm. about. There's a moment at the near the end where William Money, the Eastwood character, has fallen off the wagon. He's become completely full circle, and he's back to the old 
psychopathic murderer that he was, like, not psychopathic necessarily, but like a remorseless killer. Right. And one of the lines is, "I'm gonna if you don't, you know, I'm gonna come back here and kill every one of you sons of bitches if you, if you don't watch out." And at that moment, this the worst threat you hear in the picture essentially. There's an enormous American flag behind him in the rain, mm-hmm. and it's there's nothing accidental about the placement of the thing. I think Eastwood's acknowledging, maybe even against his will, and certainly against a lot of his own earlier pictures, that this country has a bloody goddamn history, and there's there's at least two sides to this sort of classic American gunslinger he's played his entire career, and it started to curdle here. I mean, this is not a healthy guy, and I, I just find that, I found that moment really charged, and I, I guess that's what... I don't get in a lot of his other pictures, I don't get any kind of sense of second thoughts or remorse or, or anything human, really, except just it's just a lot of a re- revenge fantasies, which can be entertaining, and God knows millions love the guy for just that. Why did the Dirty Harry franchise keep on going long past the quality had dipped below acceptable levels, I thought, because people just simply enjoy seeing those revenge cycles spin out keep going and this guy's unkillable unstoppable i'm not interested personally in unkillable unstoppable heroes like that in a quote serious story i think unforgiven is the one of the few times in eastwood's career where he found the right story and a good script and every one of the actors uh, uh, you know right on the money it's a very unpredictable film for ways i'd like to talk about more but now what do you guys think? <laughs> well adam where does it fall for you after the revisit especially maybe this ambivalence question yeah because there are parallels to our discussion with american sniper and just trying to figure out our conversation was a lot the two of us trying to figure out what really was going mm-hmm. on in this film. Did, did you find any parallels there with Unforgiven? Well, I think there is some contradictory notions at work here, which adds to this movie's power. And I think we'll come back a little bit to American Sniper. But I would say that I answered Unforgiven in that poll question. I felt really good about it when mm-hmm. I clicked that vote. I just feel even better about it now, having seen Unforgiven, having been able to revisit it. And it's funny, Michael, that you were so precise with your estimation, used a little bit of math there, saying it was four-fifths of a, <laughs> of a great film or a, a masterpiece. Yep. We'll come back around then. Okay. And I'll, tell you about why. That. I'll tell you why. In a but second. then you're going to directly challenge what I'm about to say, because my first thought when this movie ended was, as much as I loathe the P word as it applies to criticism in general, especially arts criticism, the P word being perfect a perfect movie or more commonly a movie that isn't perfect. Hmm. I was still thinking about that. That word was dancing in my head because what would you change about Unforgiven? I can't come up with anything. I wouldn't change a shot. I oh, wouldn't change wait a minute now. I wouldn't change a shot. I wouldn't change a line. <laughs> there are so many quotable lines in this script as you touched on Michael. I wouldn't change a line reading. I wouldn't change a performance. I certainly wouldn't change the balance of tragedy and comedy. Michael, you're dead on. This is a funny movie. There are many really Morgan good, Freeman funny is, lines. is key to that too. Sure, Not only Hackman, too, but uh, Freeman kind of deflating Eastwood's persona yeah, whenever the whole he gets English a chance. Bob character as well. That's funny stuff. Oh, yeah. That showdown with little Bill. And here's what I like. The whole thing with Richard Harris showing up as English Bob, that character enters the story and then exits the He's story. He's gone for good. In a very, in a very <laughs> unpredictable yep. kind of rhythm. Mm-hmm. And and it's kind of cruelly funny how he's dispatched and uh, or just or sort of gotten rid of in terms of story. That's a yeah. deconstruction of a myth in itself. In that little mini narrative, yeah. is doing what the entire movie is doing overall. Right, yeah. right, right. And All with right. that, that uh, balance, enough, I, I want to hear more about uh, well, oh, blah, blah, how blah, perfect, perfect, it perfect it is. Well, yeah. with that balance of tragedy and comedy, there's also that balance that Eastwood and people strike between classical filmmaking, you said it, Michael, and 
this little bit of revisionist filmmaking. If you've seen other Eastwood films, if you've seen other Westerns, certainly it informs everything you see here. You can have that experience with it. But this isn't McCabe and Mrs. Miller. This isn't The Long Goodbye and what it does with noir, for example, where an understanding of the myths and the conventions it's skewering, I think, is critical, really crucial to understanding what you're watching on screen. I love those two movies, but there's no sense that Unforgiven is just interested in a meta exercise. No, no, not at all. No, it really wants us to question, though, where truth and narrative coincide and where they diverge. And that's really crystallized in a lot of ways. It it, it runs throughout the whole story. It's not just one character, one storyline, but the Saul Rubinek Beauchamp character, this writer who is chronicling the exploits of English Bob. He's the Horace Greeley of the story. Yeah, you know, and then he wants to move on or does move on to Little Bill and then at the end is maybe even willing to move on if Clint Eastwood's character was willing. He is one of these characters who's helping to generate those myths and he's certainly profiting from those myths. And the myth that the Schofield kid, for example, has clearly grown up on and uses to define really who he is and and who he wants to be, his entire worldview. But I do also think he's supposed to stand in and represent us a little bit. He's the observer. He's the outsider. He's someone who's lapping all of this action up. And he's watching these men and their stories and evaluating their deeds. And he's separating the villains from the heroes and making that as black and white as possible. And he's drawing conclusions about these big topics like masculinity and honor and redemption the same way we use westerns that's how this character is using these various myths you have insulted the honor of this beautiful woman Corcoran said the duck you must apologize but Tugan Corcoran would have none of it in cursing he reached for his pistols and would have killed him but the duck was faster and hot lad blazed from his smoking six guns See, I consider that to be an accurate depiction of the events, albeit all right. There is a certain poetry to the language which I couldn't resist. Uh, uh, Mr. Beauchamp, I was in the Blue Bottle Saloon in Wichita the night that English Bob killed Corky Corcoran. I didn't see you there. There are no women, no two gun shooters. All right, Michael, what's your All right, here's my one problem. Here, here's my problem. I have, a feeling, I have a feeling I might be able to respond to it with why I also confidently voted for it as the best after I'd revisited yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, on a gut level, I prefer Letters from Iwo Jima because it's so unusual for Eastwood. And I think it's – it's, and that's a film I, I would, I'd, I'd like to see again. I've only seen that – I think I saw Iwo Jima twice uh, eight years ago, but haven't seen it since. I, I think, Josh, in the, for Unforgiven, it's not a matter of like certain – performances or uh, a weak scene here and there in Unforgiven. I think it's really more that the way the picture deals with the Schofield kid plays by James Wolvett uh, and his first, quote, kill, which he's been inflating to say, oh, yeah, I've killed five men. And it's a really kind of ugly, cold, you know, point blank murder in the outhouse. That's a sobering moment, and it leads to one of the best scenes in the picture where it's just simply a, a, a kind of a debriefing after that happens. And the Eastwood character is not much of a talker, clearly. He just says it's one of the most quoted lines in the picture. It's a hell of a thing, killing a man. Then, then I think, the last, a lot of the last 20, 25 minutes, maybe a half hour of Unforgiven turns into a pretty conventional Western where it's Clint Eastwood with his gun killing a lot of anonymous, disposable vermin mm-hmm. we don't know. And that's why the movie, A, made money, 
because it because it gave the old school audiences, I think, uh, and people just sort of out for kicks uh, what they wanted, which is Clint killing a lot of guys in a bar, and then you know basically getting a happy ending, uh, as happy as this film can concoct. And B, I just think it it undermines lines like that. I think a lot of what goes right in the story points to. Eastwood's character knowing that he's about to reckon with death. And I, I maybe it's just, again, it go, maybe you go back to my ambivalence about Eastwood's image, everything about this guy's, but I think uh, maybe there's something in the Eastwood persona I'm always going to fundamentally root against. But in Unforgiven, everything points toward the death of William Money, and the film doesn't deliver it, and I think it just uh, ends up feeling like, here we go again. You know, we're back in a bar with Clint killing a bunch of guys we don't know. And it's just a much more conventional ending to a, a really unconventional and terrific movie. Well, I thought that might be your reservation because I struggled with that in this revisit initially as well with that ending. I, I sat there when it was over and thought pretty much that. Have we just reverted and gone back to everything that happened before he started making this movie? Because the movie up until that point is this maybe not renunciation of violence, but a recognition of the falseness falseness of violence. There are so many instances. The one I'll point to very quickly is when little Bill does beat the crap out of English Bob. And we could say that we should be cheering that on, but the cutting there, the editing showing the horrified looks of the onlookers who are, you know, there should be happy because he's defending their town, but they're just appalled by the violence. And little Bill ends that scene kind of standing in the street alone. He should be victorious, but it doesn't depict him that way. That's just one instance of... But two those, hours, but those, okay, but those, two hours okay, those two of undermining. But those two characters are just different degrees of venality. There's well, no real moral discomfort okay, in that. But scene. there's also it's the to watch. But yeah. there are also the scenes of undercutting Eastwood's own. He undercuts his own mythic character by saying that that's the guy I used to be. That that's all prelude to this final scene. Hmm. And and after it sat with me for a bit, I re- I realized that. And maybe I'm giving Eastwood too much credit. I know Adam thinks I am giving him too much credit with American Sniper, but I really saw a lot of parallels here. In that the final ten minutes of Unforgiven, Eastwood becomes that mythic figure that he had been deflating. The one yeah, key yeah, to yeah, me is that you can hear his spurs for the first time when he walks into that bar. It is serving up on a silver platter everything that it had previously been nine for those two hours. So this is either one of the most hypocritical endings (laughs) of a film of all time, or it is a brilliant challenge to the audience to say, okay, I've been telling you, I've been showing you that violence, even righteous violence, is is false. It doesn't lead to what you think it does. It doesn't lead to what the movies have sold us. Now I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to let you lap it up. And how does it sit with you now? Are you going to get back on board? Mm-hmm. Now, not every audience is going to take it that way. I don't know if any audience is going to take it that way. That's how I, that's I, how I took it. That's I'm how I took it. I, I <laughs> sat there and thought, credit too. There, has, there is such a disconnect here that it can't simply be this guy just saying, now I got to go back to what I was doing before because there's too much evidence in everything that came before the the myth that you talked about with the dime novel, Adam, how they deconstruct that, that's not really what happened. The shootout is there. there's, you know, not only sadness, there's fear mm-hmm. and uh, that play into it and luck. Yeah. And it's all this deconstructing. There is no way that that final 10 minutes is served up just to placate an audience. It may have done that. 
It may have worked uh, that way no, at the box I, I office. I think it is. I, th- I think that's. I think Eastwood is a is a very uh, to, uh, to his bo- in his bones. He is first and foremost, you know, a craftsman and a businessman. And this is you know he he's enough of a producer <laughs> as a sensibility that he he's always you know the one to keep the budget you know very tight and economical. He, he's <laughs> the shoots are never long. The the takes are never numerous. Mm-hmm. And I think. Uh, I don't. I don't know if people's script, which was an older script, I think it had been laying around a while since right? the seventies. Apparently, yeah. That would be an yeah, interesting yeah. question of how the or the script that Eastwood got handles had been, had and details been, those the, the yeah, climax. Yeah, it would it? But I, I suspect it wasn't. I suspect it was about right, and even uh, whether or not it was rewritten for the early nineties when it was actually brought before the cameras, I think people's script delivered the ending it delivered because it it he knew that it wouldn't have gotten past anybody's assistant in any production company any studio anywhere in the world without at least something to if satisfy had died or if, if, if something to satisfy some of the western conventions of old and mm-hmm. and that's what you get and and you can say that that's part of a tradition and you can say the movie is a very provocative mashup of Kind of keeping a lot of the old traditions alive, but also questioning them and giving, you know, making the audience eat it a little bit on on the way. But uh, it's not like it's not like this film is wildly out of character with a lot of Eastwood's warm up westerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wish it would have been a wonderful thing if if somehow the movie had stayed really tough and, and true to that instinct in it. Now, others don't respond to that instinct in it. They just respond to a lot of other things, and there's so much to respond mm-hmm. to in this film. Well, sir, you were a cowardly son of a bitch. You just shot an unarmed man. Well, he should have armed himself. He's going to decorate his saloon with my friend. You'd be William Money out of Missouri. Killed women and children. That's right. I've killed women and children. Killed just about everything that walks or crawled at one time or another. And I'm here to kill you, little Bill. For what you did to Ned. You're listening to Film Spotting. Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune here, helping us to deconstruct. Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven from 1992. It was the 1993 Best Picture winner. And I I guess I'll give you a little bit of my take on that scene, though I'm mostly with Josh. But the way you get to it, I think, is important. And, Michael, you talked about it in terms of what I think you said was your favorite overall scene in the movie, the debriefing, if you will, of that second killing of the cowboy who really commits the key crime here that instigates this whole story. Right. And... What I love in particular is the way Eastwood, how subtly he handles that moment when William Money finally takes a drink. The whole movie has been about how he doesn't drink anymore and all that wickedness has been taken out of him by his wife and the fact that he's off the whiskey. And he's had opportunities. Ned's offered it to him. He has that moment in the bar where he's feeling sick and the bottle is right there. And we get one of those kind of conventional moments where the recovering alcoholic looks at the bottle and thinks about it, but then he doesn't do it. And here in the moment when he finally does take the drink, I think so many other directors would have drawn more attention to it. They would have treated it that way, the way Eastwood does earlier when he rejects it. But here he is. He could so easily be reckoning with the severity of these circumstances, succumb to the temptation, and take a drink. And like I said, we'd maybe get the director really focusing on that. Instead, it just 
It just happens in this familiar way. If you're not really paying attention, you might almost miss that William no, Money finally takes a drink very, of the bottle. It's very nicely uninflected. He, yeah, yeah, he just finally does it. And there's a sense of familiarity to it. And I don't think it's an accident that he's taking a drink literally at the exact moment it's in sync with the prostitute who they're talking to, who's giving them the information. She's talking about his past exploits as a gunman and as a murderer. And she is saying his name. You're William Money, the guy who killed women and children. And it's in sync with that that he takes that drink. He's that guy who did those things and is a about to do more. And I think, Josh, you said it. How many times saw this movie do we hear, I ain't like that anymore. I ain't like that anymore. It's like you protest too much. Maybe you really are that guy. Maybe you really are the sum of your actions, no matter how hard you try to reject that at some point. Maybe you can soften, you can redeem yourself a little bit. But at his core, he's that guy. And at the end, he finally can't run away from who he really is. He takes the drink and he goes back to get that vengeance. And I think that part of the thrill of that showdown with little Bill is that he becomes himself. He assumes his rightful identity in that moment and does what he does best. And that's that's kill people, even as there's a real tragic quality to that. Now, to get back to your point, Michael, is that why I enjoy it? Is that why there's a visceral thrill? And there is for me, I have to admit, in watching him take down there's five no guys. There's no deconstruction going on. In no, there scene. really yeah, isn't. Yeah. But I'll say this too, Michael, to counter what you said. I don't think you get the power of that American flag moment at the end of this movie, if you don't get the moments that lead up to that. I think that rejection of that flag, that has to be a rejection of that righteous aggression, to use the American sniper phrase that you keyed in on during our review there. You have to have that to sort of counteract what we just saw and make us question and make us at least think about the fact that our entire history is predicated on those types of righteously aggressive moments. Whether they're righteous or not, does that really make them okay. We think about it in the end, but I think we need to see him mow down those people. I admit, I get a little bit of a thrill out of it as just sort of an action movie thing, watching Eastwood do what he does best. But at the same time, I was thinking about it later. So it worked. Well, wouldn't wouldn't this have been falser if it had been a redemption story? And it could have been the redemption story with William Money's death, Michael. I mean, they could have, no, he held firm. He didn't revert. Right. And, and he got shot because of it. And we'd all gone out thinking, what a... What a wonderful man he was. Well, no, we don't. To, to me, yeah, yeah, yeah. to me, that feels less true yeah. to the crimes he did before, and also this becomes a redescent into depravity. It's it's not necessarily a redemption, and he uses violence the right way now. No, you know he was it's he was using it poorly before. Yeah, they hurt his now friend. Now he's using I it. Disagree. Right. I disagree. Okay, I disagree there because I think everything in the story. Is saying, well, of course he's got to do what he does. These people are, uh, you know, we don't know them, but they're vermin, and and just for story purposes, he's got to mow down everybody in the bar and but move on, and move on to the happy ending. He gets he gets his villain, <laughs> but he also mows down everybody in the bar. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and we've come to understand that you know not everybody is little Bill. I mean, there are other people here who have lives, and I feel like there is a cost. To that, and and I just even think little there Bill little... is more complicated than that. That's yeah, one of the things sure. I love in for this sure. second viewing is seeing that he's not just the pure sadist. He maybe comes well, off. No, that's, and, yeah. and there's wonderful variety of what Hackman Hackman does. Just right. in terms, of, I mean, and the, and the great thing about this script is that it really does take time for these weird character moments, and it doesn't really hurry through any of that stuff to get to the next story point. It's just not that kind of picture. I Thank also, God. I also like how it it doesn't glamorize who he was. You're you're right, Adam. There are so many lines saying I'm not that guy anymore. Or Ned says it. Freeman says it. You're not that guy anymore. But 
that kind of mythologizes that guy he was, right? But we get details about that guy, who he was from his own mouth, often in the darkness of a campfire, when he'll recall the gruesome, right. horrific elements of, you know, the bullet going through the guy's head. He These are the things that haunt him. So, again, we're not seeing Eastwood as, ooh, he did some bad things. That makes him kind of cool. We're hearing details uh, yeah. about some really ugly stuff. I think it goes up. To, it goes up to the forty nine percent mark on that. I just, I, I just think <laughs> too, you're bringing too much math. To this I, I movie, think so. Right? Well, I'm, I'm obviously, it was a math major in college. <laughs> the um, I'm always looking, uh, and I, you know, it'll be a, it's it's my own fault for trying to bring these expectations to Eastwood because he's not interested in this. But I, I tend to, on some level, always look for a slightly tougher minded harsher look at the cost of the violence in a lot of in, in a lot of his quote serious pictures i think unforgiven is like the american sniper and i think unforgiven is five times the achievement of american sniper sure because i don't think there's particularly anything you're not meant to ask at all about really except for a couple of scenes and, and i've been accused of underplaying this but you know the the the, the 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 two really good scenes in american sniper are all are both it's, it adds up to about two minutes of screen time but that scene in the bar where he's just simply not ready to come home and he mm-hmm. has a very difficult phone call with his wife and cooper really beautifully acted you know uh, moments in that scene also i think the scene where he meets the, his fellow iraq war veteran with a prosthetic leg in the tire shop that's and the the discomfort that the that the chris kyle character's kind of undergoing there because mm-hmm. it's he just is simply clearly not ready to kind of you know process any of the emotional baggage of what he's dealt with i just wish the movie dealt with more of that baggage because it's it's confined essentially to maybe two scenes right the ptsd that the kyle's you know undergoing is essentially solved and cured in about 20 minutes of screen time and that to me we that's agree a, on that yeah we agree on that and even people that like the movie a lot can sort of wonder if it's you know, ducking and dodging some of the issues on that front. And I just, I, I just want, you know, look, I, I don't make movies, you know, I, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't listen to my advice if I were producing films, <laughs> but I, I, I think inarguably you'd get a tougher minded, more complicated and kind of more haunting film. If the, something like Unforgiven had gone all the way and really kind of made the audience eat it a little bit more toward the end and really made you question, you know, how far, down into the depths has this guy fallen as he's kind of finishing the job. And I think, you know, the movie simply wouldn't have made $100 million domestic back in 1992-93 if it had gone that way. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. So American Sniper wouldn't be heading toward half a billion worldwide if it really made you wonder more about the cost of what it what it took to be the deadliest sniper in u.s military history Hmm. it's just it's just that's just i think those are simple numbers i think eastwood's comfortable you know uh making the kind of movies he is and you know he's never going to give you anything new visually to look at that he hasn't that he hasn't experimented with 30 years early he makes a certain kind of picture very head-on Straight ahead, four square technique, nothing fancy, and in that regard, it's it, it's kind of an honorable tradition he's upholding. There's not mm-hmm. many left of him. What is he? Eighty four, eighty five years old. You know, it's it's kind of it's kind of fantastic that he's still on. T- you know, he's making the biggest hit of his career, even if I don't like it. Mm-hmm. American Sniper. Um, <laughs> yeah. But Unforgiven's different. It feels that one feels like a western that's got 
one foot in sort of the the Anthony Mann, James Stewart things. It's, I, it does, now that we're a few years away from it, guys, I yeah. think it's, in, now it's starting to recede in a really good way into the Hollywood's past. And it was a pleasure to see how well it held up. Well, there are a lot of contradictions in this movie and implicitly, too, in a lot of these characters as we talk about narratives and myth and, and reality versus fiction. And we were talking about Little Bill and that line that you love, which is one of the best lines when he's having his death scene, and he says, I was building a house. It's a case of this guy who wants to position himself to the world as if he is so civilized, right? And he is not the base degenerate that William Money is. But in that moment when he says that, it's him saying, I- I'm better than you. But he really isn't. He's just as bad a carpenter as William Money is a pig farmer. He's not at all really who he, <laughs> he good point, yeah. comes off as. But I did want to say, because I was noting how I thought the movie was potentially perfect for whatever that's worth. And as I was watching it, though, I thought, Michael, I had found one problem with the movie. Not so much a problem, but just one underdeveloped kind of angle. And that was Delilah, the prostitute who gets cut up and, as we said, sort of instigates this whole story. She is such a blank slate. And so much chaos and bloodshed in this film ensues in her name. And there she is, scene after scene, just sitting on the fence, kind of watching, watching and the never expressing herself. I agree. No, the women, the women are uh, so, marginalized completely. Okay, but I've got a justification for this one, too, Michael. Give me a moment. <laughs> all right, all right. The movie is, <laughs> I, I was, so I was I. put off that the movie is content to use her as just a victim for most of the film as just a martyr. But not only does she get a scene later with Will, where she finally gets to come out of her shell a little bit and have a bit of her own voice. It finally did occur to me about three quarters of the way through this movie that her lack of agency is, of course, the entire point of the movie. She is a symbol. She is a symbol for all of these other narratives that are going on. She's whatever all of these people want her to be, and they will all use her to justify their own ends. Think about someone like Little Bill using her to keep peace in his town, scare away the miscreants he doesn't like. Schofield Kid is using her story to prove his manhood. Will's using it to provide for his family. Strawberry Alice and the other prostitutes are using her, essentially, even if they're right to look out for her and want certain amount of vengeance, they're really doing it to show that they have value and they aren't just horses and they don't want to be treated as such. And I do think it's notable that the Schofield Kid, he helps sell Will. Right. By exaggerating the tale. He says she didn't yeah. just have her face cut up, but basically she's horribly mutilated, disfigured, yeah, mutilated horrible, yeah, really yeah. from from head to toe. And he uses that same line to sell Ned to get Morgan Freeman's character to follow him as well. When they finally come across her, there's never a moment where anyone says, oh, wait, this isn't what I was expecting at all. Why am I still doing this? They knew on some level they were being sold a bill of goods. They don't care because they embrace it they embrace the lie because it's in their own best interest to embrace it you know i i think you could almost consider this a feminist western if you could say clint eastwood could make a feminist western if, if the think women about, if the women it, talked more it's not a matter of talking it's a matter of how often they return in the narrative it's where the narrative starts it starts with the perspective of William Money's dead wife. They, the, the on-screen titles are talking about her and her story, and the first thing we see is him at her grave. This entire film is driven by the women's narrative. Starts with his wife, goes to the prostitutes, that who are, the one is attacked and the others come to really rally around. It's their efforts that cause all these dominoes to fall. That 
could have just happened and gone away. But it's because the Alice character, played by Frances Fisher, pursues it, isn't going to let it go. And you could say, okay, that's just to get the plot in motion. But no, the camera returns to their faces so often. And you're right, Michael, they don't get a lot of lines. There are a few group scenes, but usually... The camera is always aware that they're a part of this story, too, because they initiated the story. And in any of those group scenes, we return to them. And there's even little touches like when Morgan Freeman's Ned leaves his homestead and his wife, Mm -hmm. the camera just pauses, goes back to watch her face as he leaves and, and to capture how is this affecting her? Very minor, maybe a second and a half. But what other Westerns would bother to do that? What you know, they wouldn't even have her there. But this one gives her at least that time to recognize yeah. that she's part of the story, too. That, that's a minor moment. But I do think the number of times we return to the prostitutes and they do get screen time so that they're not just forgotten after they initiate the action is crucial. I, I, maybe. I, I think you could look at it like you never quite know how prominent a role they're going to be playing in the film as it uh, as it unspools. But that's true of kind of all, all the characters in a really good way. That script is kind of rangy and unpredictable for such a simple kind of classically designed get the gang together for one last score you know kind of premise but is the recent Tommy Lee Jones western the homesman uh, did you see that I didn't see it but Josh yeah, didn't like it I mean, I, I, yeah and I mean I don't think I think pre- it was trying to do some similar things and be a feminist right western and that's and a case that's a case where you have, you have you have uh, you know these, these really anguished troubled female characters who are uh, an intrinsic part of the story, yet essentially mute, (laughs) you know, for much of the time, and dramatically a little bit sidelined. And so that, I did have a little bit of feeling on that with with, uh, seeing Unforgiven the the second time, at least for the first time in 20-some years, um, where you just think, well, it's a shame that, we didn't just kind of stay with some of these characters longer just to hear, you know, it, the, that film takes a lot of discursive and very interesting kind of side roads, you know, and, and I wish, I just wish one of them, one or two of them had gone more with them. But why so, you, so it's not perfect, goddammit. Why do you have to harsh our buzz, Michael? <laughs> That's what you're always but doing But it's very here. good, but it's very good. And, and no, it's very, I mean, this it's... This is feeling like Raiders all over again, <laughs> but, a little bit. But you actually liked Unforgiven. I like so. it. You know, one, and one last thing, I... I have struggled with the Western genre my entire life since I was five years old. It is never, it's always been one of my least favorites as a kid. It was never the kind of movie I sought out when I was, when I was five years old. Great Westerns were not being made. And I tended to resist the big, acknowledged, anointed classics like Shane or a few others. I, and I still, but eventually, when I was about 30, 35 years old, I finally found the Westerns that, okay, got it. Yeah. These are the ones for me. And they tended to be one step down on the on the classic scale, a little less portentous and pretentious. You know, when I saw things like the Anthony Mann Westerns with James Stewart, especially things like the Naked Spur, the original 310 to Yuma with Glenn Ford and, 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 you know, I mean, those, okay, it's like, now I got it. Now mm-hmm. I get the appeal. And they always tended to be, the ones I liked and still like, are the ones, like Unforgiven, that refuse to allow you an easy resolution or an easy good versus evil. They, you know, it's just more gray area, more interesting opposition characters like Robert Ryan and Naked Spur where, the, I mean, this guy is a scarily effective kind of psychological manipulator. Um, same with Glenn Ford and 310 to Yuma. And uh, you could say, I guess Hackman plays a, a somewhat related role in Unforgiven, mm-hmm. just in that you don't really know 
exactly how bad the behavior and the you know the pathology is going to get until it gets there. Because for a while, as you said, Adam, he just seems like a guy who. You know, is kind of worried about his self-image and trying to keep the peace. Yeah. You know, but never a good guy. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, it's a real strength of that script and the way Eastwood handled it too. Just how to how to keep people guessing, and mm-hmm. that's not really political. That's not really taking sides. That's just kind of good storytelling. Well, we're in line there in terms of how we came around to westerns. It's not a surprise. Westerns were the first ever film spotting marathon back in 2005 for a reason, and that's because. I had to come around to appreciating them as well. My father was constantly watching Westerns, John Wayne aficionado growing up, which means like any other red-blooded American kid, I had to reject everything my father (laughs) seemed to love, and I would just avoid these movies. And finally, doing the show forced me to reckon with that. I'm glad I did. Hopefully, many of you have seen Unforgiven. We're guessing you have. Tell us your thoughts. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. And I will link to as well in our show notes. I don't know if you guys had a chance to see it. I didn't make it through the whole thing, but our friends at The Dissolve here in Chicago made Unforgiven their movie of the week. They gave it that treatment back in November 2013. So if you're curious to check that out, we'll link to that in our show notes. We'll share voters' comments from that Eastwood poll when we come back, including some High Plains Drifter love, then jump right into our Oscar picks. Adam, it's your last chance to get on the Birdman bandwagon. Where's my drum? I need a snare. Stay with us. Strange. I used to buy, I used to moan. Hey folks, wanted to jump in real quick for a reminder that this episode of Film Spotting is supported by Shutterstock.com, where you'll find the perfect video for your next creative project. Josh, it's been a little while since Shutterstock has been on board as a sponsor, so I had an opportunity once again to go to Shutterstock.com and do a little searching around, see what might be available if I find myself in a position where I need to be making a short film or some other creative project. And in keeping with our review of Unforgiven, I typed in Western. I got back 15,265 footage clips. There were a lot of them, as you may imagine, that were related to Western as in not Eastern, thinking of culture. Okay. But also, you get some of those images and imagery that you would think of as being right in line with a classic Western movie, such as Silhouette Cowboy Rides in Sunset, Western Cowgirls Drive a Herd of Horses Along a Country Road, Okay. and 
Wild Bill on horseback with his cowboy performers outside a tent. The actual Wild Bill wow. on horseback. So a plethora of Western-related clips out there if you find yourself so inclined to make a revisionist Western someday. Whatever your project is, you can choose from over 2 million high-quality stock video clips, 2D animations, and 3D motion graphics at Shutterstock.com. They have a variety of digital formats from lower resolution for web use to HD and now some in 4K. Many of Shutterstock's contributors are professional filmmakers. They're adding over 25,000 video clips each week. Shutterstock does have flexible pricing. You can choose between individual clips or video packs for the best deal. Either way, Shutterstock makes it easy. As you find the video assets that you're looking for, just save them to the clip box. Then you can access your selections anytime and share them with others. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account. You don't need a credit card. Just start an account and begin browsing Shutterstock to help imagine what your next project could be like. Save those video selections that you find to your clip box. Once you decide to purchase, use offer code FILM215 and new accounts will receive 20% off only footage clips. That's Shutterstock.com. And for 20% off any video clips with a new account, use offer code FILM215. In these little promotional breaks, Josh, we do like to feature testimonials, often from our listeners. I know there are many creative film spotters out there who have probably used Shutterstock at one point or another with whatever project they're working on. I would love to feature some of those on the show. So if you have used Shutterstock before and you've got a short film or whatever it might be, send us a link. Give us your thoughts on how easy it was to use that service. We might just mention it and link to it in our show notes. Especially if you've used Wild Bill on horseback. I would love to see that. We thank Shutterstock for their support. You can't turn all these people out into the night. It is inhuman, brother, inhuman. I'm not your brother. We are all brothers in the eyes of God. All these people, are they your sisters and brothers? They most certainly are. And you won't mind if they come over and stay at your place, will you? Welcome back to Film Spotting with Michael Phillips, Josh Larson, and I'm Adam Kempinar. That was a scene from High Plains Drifter, our co-producer Sam Van Halgren, taking a cue from my letterboxed comments, having just caught up with High Plains Drifter in preparation for our Sacred Cow discussion of Unforgiven. That was a scene I singled out from that film, and we just spent an entire segment, or at least Josh and I spent an entire segment, trying to convince you that Unforgiven is Clint Eastwood's undisputed masterpiece and a great, if not the greatest, revisionist Western. Well, there are film spotting listeners who disagree. We picked the wrong revisionist Western. We'll get to some of your feedback here in a moment. Did want to promote, though, our Satchajit Ray Marathon, it continues earlier in the week. We posted in our iTunes feed, or you can listen at filmspotting.net. Our episode that is devoted to parts two and three of the Apu trilogy, The Unvanquished and The World of Opu. So good. They both are. You just spoiled it. Now no one has to listen, Josh. <laughs> we, have, but, we have a few other things to say <laughs> beyond that. We did give it a good 30 minutes or so, I think, on both of those films. If you subscribe to the podcast already, you can find that conversation in your feed right now. Or as we said, you can listen at filmspotting.net. And if you click on marathons on our website, you'll find the complete Ray lineup, 1958's The Music Room is up next. In your setup, done Forgiven, Josh, you highlighted our recent poll question. We asked listeners simply, what's your favorite Clint Eastwood film? And we expected Unforgiven to win. 
probably expected it to win with about 52% of the vote. But we did get a lot of great feedback in addition to the votes. And as we noted coming into this segment, some High Plains drifter love. Let's start with Ben H. from Houston, Texas. From the early results, it seems this will be yet another unforgiven love fest. So I'll have to once again say that everyone is still looking at the wrong Eastwood revisionist Western. If you want the right one, see the first of the four he made, High Plains Drifter. The film is not just a fantastically bitter deconstruction of the poetic West, but a brilliantly cynical take on supernatural revenge. The film is the kind of work only a young Eastwood would make, brash, arrogant, brilliant, and brutal. Unforgiven is great, but High Plains Drifter is Eastwood's magnum opus. And this is Zach from Queens, New York, agreeing with Ben about High Plains Drifter. Unforgiven is given all the credit for dismantling the romanticism of the Western genre, but Drifter does it better. Instead of repeatedly telling the audience we did some bad things, Drifter shows our hero committing unspeakable acts. That's a good point. I liken it to a reverse dogville where a stranger comes into town and takes advantage of the town's naivete with horrific results. It's an existentialist treat and one of the best Westerns of all time. Erin Teachman agreeing with Zach and with Ben about High Plains Drifter. She's in Washington, D.C. I had a bit of a struggle with this poll. Is the question, what is the greatest film that Clint Eastwood ever made or the best film that only Clint Eastwood could have made? On this list, it's Unforgiven, which no one else could make or star in. So heavily does it rely on our understanding of the Western and Clint's role in the history of the genre. But that's not the movie I voted for. I'm really glad that we've already gotten two people talking about High Plains Drifter, which is what I picked. It's brilliant, brutal, and systematic in dismantling and rearranging the archetypal characters of the Western. I'm going to revisit that one. I, as I said, just saw it, finally, and was very much surprised at just how unsympathetic that character is. And Michael, you touched on this sort of avenging angel figure that Eastwood has always played, going back to those Leone movies. There was certainly a sense of almost there being a supernatural presence to him, the way he comes in with no history, and he's so good with the guns and so good at outsmarting everyone that he almost seems like he's aided by some forces that are that are dark. But I don't see that so much in Unforgiven, except, except for, for that, that final scene. scene yeah. right? But even then, I would say he's just really good at what he does and has a lot of experience. That's really taken to an extreme in High Plains Drifter. There is absolutely a sense that he might not be a flesh-and-blood man. I mean, depending on how you read it, there's a line near the end of the film, not spoiling anything, where a character says, I never did get your name. And he says, oh, you know my name. And you can read it two ways. You either know exactly what his last name is and why he came into this town and did the things he did, or you can read it completely the opposite as, you know who I am. I'm the angel of death. I came here only to wreak havoc on this town and basically punish every single person in this town. It's pretty fascinating. It's also coming, that came, I think, two years after The Beguiled, which is one of the strangest movies he ever made, and, and certainly shows you how much flexibility there was in the Western genre, because that's much closer to kind of a gothic horror film, hmm. you know, and he's not playing necessarily a character way outside his range or his usual sort of parameters, but just the story, the story machinations are really nutty in that one, and... Uh, uh, yeah, that, that, that's a film that, like High Plains Drifter, that um, I, I do like more than a lot of them, and I need to revisit both of those. Well, you'll certainly be shocked, or not shocked, Michael, but fitting with your theme about Unforgiven and Eastwood's treatment of women, wow, is it problematic in High Plains Drifter. We could devote 40 minutes just to treatment of women in that film. We do have one more comment here with a vote. It comes from Brett from Newton, Massachusetts. Not sure we needed a poll to learn that Unforgiven would be voted Eastwood's best film, although I'm a big fan of the film. 
My vote goes to other and a perfect world. I take every opportunity I can find to trumpet this as Eastwood's masterpiece. Oddly underperforming upon release, it was Eastwood's follow-up to Unforgiven and Kevin Costner's first role after Dances with Wolves. It deserves a second look. Costner's greatest performance. The perfect vehicle for Eastwood's understated classic direction. An ending that is inevitable, surprising, and exactly right. Plus, it has Clint's best line ever. I do like tater tots. <laughs> wow, well done. <laughs> I don't little, know if that's how he says it. <laughs> no Massacre Theater on this show, so you just had to get a funny voice in. There Josh, you go. <laughs> you, were, you were pretty close. Thank you to Brett, Aaron, Zach, Ben, and everyone else who left a comment. That brings us to our Oscar poll. Before we get to our Oscar picks, even as we spend a show every year talking about the Oscars, we hypocritically always talk about how we don't really care about them. And it is true that we don't really follow the well, buzz you're all that them. much. You're above but, them. Well, that's, you're yes, above them. that's really it. And yet here we are just contradicting ourselves, just like Eastwood at the end of Unforgiven, Michael. Yeah. We do have favorites. Everybody has favorites. Even if you truly are someone who pays no attention to it, maybe on some gut level, you're going to check the results the next day or you're going to go on Twitter and see who won and who didn't. And you probably had a vested interest in at least one of the outcomes. So we kind of boiled these down to five or six that we think are maybe the ones a lot of people, at least a lot of film spotters might be rooting for. So simply our question, which Oscar outcome would you most like to see? Michael Keaton getting Best Actor, Wes Anderson getting Best Director. J.K. Simmons winning Best Supporting Actor or Patricia Arquette winning Best Supporting Actress. And as usual, we'll give you another option. That's right. We want to know what you think. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. Conspicuously and intentionally, it turns out, absent from that poll is Boyhood as a Best Picture option. Certainly, going back, Michael, to our Top 10 of the Year roundtable in December, it's gotten a lot of love on the show. Probably going to get a little bit more as we make it through this episode. And it's, it's one... Film Spotting Poll Awards already, favorite film of 2014. We just decided we didn't need another slaughter. Leave it off. There you go. Leave we it left off. it off. Again, vote now at filmspotting.net. And if you leave a comment, which we do encourage you to do, please let us know where you're listening from. Where's the out of Boy Scouts? As punishment for blowing up the Macross mailbox with M80s. I was 13. That you remember. Oh. That. Old enough to know better. You didn't come to my high school graduation or college. Why? Jail time. Truancy, I was going to reward anything. I graduated from law school, for Christ's sake. As opposed to what, dropping out? Let me tell you something, okay? Here. I put a roof over your head, money in your pocket, clothes on your back, food in your mouth. Who paid for that college education? Your mother? The great Robert Duvall with Robert Downey Jr. there in a film... I have to admit, I didn't see The Judge from Wedding Crashers director David Dobkin. I'm going to assume, Michael, being a more credible, reputable, beautiful film critic, that you saw The Judge. <laughs> I am a more beautiful critic. Uh, I did see The I Judge. Said dutiful, yeah, I said beautiful, not beautiful. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said beautiful. Um, I, I always hear the word beautiful when uh-huh. you're beautiful. It explains a lot of really weird conversations I've had. Yeah, I saw The Judge. I wrote about it. So I figured, you know, I, I wrote the review, and then I thought, eh, guilty. I, I went and saw it. Uh-huh. Not much of a movie, but Duvall, I suppose, honestly, in an alternate universe, if Duvall hadn't won all those years ago for Tender Mercies. 84. And let's say he's up for his X number of, uh, I forget how many nominations. Seven. Seven. Boy, you really have the stats. Pal. That's right. So let's, let's, let's imagine. This is his seventh. Let's, let's imagine this is his seventh. 
you know, and he's never won. He, who knows, he might career he might he might have won this year. Mm-hmm. Not much of a movie, but it's you know a pretty good performance. It's better than a pretty good performance. But he did win, and he doesn't have a shot now. Well, the judge is the only film. I'm very happy to say, for me anyway, that I didn't see. Of all the nominees we're going to talk about, it's the only one I didn't see. I feel good about that. A little bit guilty, but not a lot guilty because, as we're going to get into this category and get into our Oscar picks, I've said this a few times in recent weeks, that category, Best Supporting Actor, is so stacked. As good as Robert Duvall is, the judge would probably have to be a pretty great film, and he would have to give a pretty remarkable performance for me to want to choose him over the other four nominees, who are Ethan Hawke for Boyhood, Edward Norton for Birdman, Mark Ruffalo for Foxcatcher, and J.K. Simmons for Whiplash. Michael, let's start with you. Who will win, and who do you think should win? This is easy for me. I think J.K. Simmons will win, and I think J.K. Simmons should win. I'm a real fan of Whiplash, and you know, it doesn't have it doesn't have a shot at too much. I think going uh, going on the twenty second, but Simmons is just the most one of the most beloved character men in Hollywood. He's uh, he's got a very interesting range, just because a lot of people knew him before seeing Whiplash for things like Juno. You know, uh, Juno's father and Juno. Uh, he can even make an insurance ad palatable. Uh, you know, I saw him on Broadway with Nathan Lane and Guys and Dolls. He can sing. He's mm. yeah, yeah, he's a lot of things. He's just great, and I just think he's he's fantastic in Whiplash. So yeah, I think that's a should and will for me. Well, I didn't see the judge either. Did not do my duty, so I can't speak to that. But you're right. You know what? Let me just, I'm going to run over to the Sound Opinions booth and just see if either <laughs> either Greg or Jim is seeing the judge. They did not see the judge. To be honest, Trust doesn't me. it? Yeah. But they also didn't see the uh, the Apu trilogy. So. That's right. <laughs> there you go. We got them there. there. You go. Simmons is going to win. I mean, obviously, it's just a performance too big for Hollywood to ignore, and he should. I mean, we've talked about how he's big in a good way in Whiplash. He's to a purpose. He's always within the context of the scene. He's not outside of it or above it or trying to do something that doesn't serve the particular scene. And and really watching it again just a couple of days ago I did and the timing of his berating insults. We talk about we talk about comic timing, how you need to be right there at the <laughs> not right my time. He's yeah, yeah, on, yeah. He's on not his tempo. Quite my tempo. Not quite it's my the tempo. right tempo for those insults in this movie. It's it's quite a performance. You're rushing. Here we go. Ready? Okay. Five, six, and. Dragging just a hair. Wait for my cue. Five, six, seven. Rushing. Five, six, and. Dragging. Okay, well, I'm going to disagree only slightly in terms of who should win. I'm with you that Simmons is going to win. I'll basically rephrase what you just said, Josh, in that it is undoubtedly the showiest of all the nominees, the most bravado, but I don't want to use that as a pejorative. It isn't to say he doesn't deliver subtle moments when he has to sell emotion, even if he is, in fact, selling emotion or show some vulnerability, he can do it. But the reality is, as I said, I love this category so much. I love these nominees so much. When I ranked my top five supporting actor turns of the year, these four, not counting Duvall, were my top four. And I had Simmons fourth because I love the other three so much. And in stark contrast to J.K. Simmons, you've got Hawk and Ruffalo, who are much quieter, restrained. It's easy to take for granted, as I've noted, Hawk is sort of kind of playing himself. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that doesn't seem like he's acting I, I quite wouldn't, enough. I wouldn't have nominated him. And really? I, I love that film. But I... I 
Ethan Hawke in Richard Linklater's uh, Before Sunrise, Sunset, and Midnight trilogy, mm-hmm. and Ethan Hawke in Boyhood. He, he's never been remotely as good in any other film than those four. This uh, Linklater and he just clearly have a yeah. good simpatico thing. Well, why isn't that to his credit? Yeah. Uh, well, I, well, if it's if, there if, on if, the I did, if I didn't find Ethan Hawke kind of kind of a tedious. <laughs> In, and in his own way, kind of a showboating uh, ham bone of an You're actor. You're still holding who's... that film where they drive around Romania against him or oh, whatever? Oh, I love that film. I love, <laughs> Bulgaria, where they actually... Bulgaria. I think they killed off like thousands of extras <laughs> shooting that movie, you know, because yeah. there's no laws at all mm. in Bulgaria. Um, uh, you, can, you, can, you can kill extras in Bulgaria. That's, that's, that's uh, under, <laughs> under, underreported. Um, I think Ethan Hawke is just a medium talent at best, and then, yes, in the Linklater films, he suddenly becomes a very good actor. Yeah. I, um, not good enough for well, me. Well, I'm nominating wow. the performance, not his career. So I'm going <laughs> I'm going with Hawk as, as okay. deserving of strong consideration. Uh, all right, fair enough. There you've got Ruffalo, more clearly a character playing the older brother to Channing Tatum and Foxcatcher. But as we touched on, Josh, the physicality is just so key. He moves like a wrestler even when he's off the mat. And he's extremely charismatic in that role. But insofar as you're drawn to him. I think, without him being conventionally charismatic. It's not about charm or humor or energy. He really downplays all that stuff, but he's just a presence. He's just so comfortable in his own skin. So I would love it if Ruffalo would win. I don't think he's going to. At the end of the day, though, my pick is Ed Norton for Birdman, a movie I don't really care for all that much, (laughs) but I'm sort of splitting the difference between the bravado and showiness of J.K. Simmons and the restraint mm-hmm. of someone like Ruffalo with Norton, who has that manic energy and forcefulness of Simmons with scenes that really show the stillness of Ruffalo. I think he's brilliant to watch schooling Michael Keaton's character in the stage scenes and schooling Keaton himself in that funny fight scene. But it's, for me, a virtuoso performance that, like his character, is ultimately in the service of the work. It really is about the work and not his ego, even if that insistence on the work makes his character and perhaps Norton himself, if you believe certain stories, an egomaniac. Right. doesn't matter. On screen, that performance was the one that wowed me most in terms of supporting this entire year. So I'm going with Norton for who should win, though he's going to lose to Simmons. That brings us to Best Supporting Actress, the five nominees, Patricia Arquette from Boyhood, Laura Dern in Wild, Kira Knightley in The Imitation Game, Emma Stone for Birdman, and Meryl. Streep, so glad to see her get a nomination. Man, just Finally. so richly deserved, and, and she's just someone who doesn't get enough recognition throughout her career for Into the Woods as the witch. Michael, your thoughts on this category? Uh, this is an easy one, just like supporting actor. I think it's should and will for Patricia Arquette, uh, and if I guess if you really wanted to look at Into the Woods for a second, you know, a pretty good adaptation of a Broadway musical, I wish they had nominated Emily Blunt instead of Meryl Streep for yeah, supporting. Yeah, I would agree I with think, that. I think she's, you know, that part's always been the most, uh, I think, immediately sympathetic kind of audience identification figure, the Baker's wife in Into the Woods. I think Emily Blunt is just beguiling in general and and really good in this in particular. And um, that would have that would have been heartening, I think, to see her nominated for yeah. what it would have been the first time, but didn't happen. And Arquette's everything. Everything people say she is about about boys. She's the glue for the picture and. I, the, the effectiveness of the film is such for me that it, it just broke my heart that they left that character, Arquette's character, where they left her in sort of that down moment where she just hmm. is having a very hard time saying goodbye and just sort of reckoning, you know, what happened to the last 12, 13 years of her life. And by that point in the picture, I was so all the way in it that I had a hard time even sort of 
dealing with it, uh, you know, in terms of my critical faculties by that point, just like, is, am I resisting this scene because I'm just, my heart's breaking for her? Mm-hmm. Or do I think that it should have been somewhat different or slightly augmented in yeah, some that's way? Interesting. I'm not sure. But performance, though, is, is flawless. You know what I'm realizing? My life is just going to go like that. This series of milestones. Getting married, having kids, getting divorced. The time that we thought you were dyslexic when I taught you how to ride a bike. Getting divorced again, getting my master's degree, finally getting the job I wanted, sending Samantha off to college, sending you off to college. You know what's next? Huh? It's my funeral. Yeah, that that really is one of the purposeful but disappointments about watching that movie is that she does leave. We leave her there and yeah because i'm i'm completely with you she she is the heart of the film i hope you're right that it's my prediction too that she'll win sort of a appreciation for a hollywood lifer thing i think going on here in addition to the quality of their performance and and one of the ways uh the academy will nod to boyhood i'm i'm guessing it's not going to get past picture but we'll get some sort of recognition this could be it and uh, she was my number one choice for best supporting actress of the year uh, i really do think boyhood is as much her character story as it is Mason's. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we're in lockstep on this one. I'll say briefly that I think Kira Knightley is fine in the imitation game, but I think she's serviceable like the movie. Meryl Streep, I think, does give a few redeeming moments in a movie I found way beyond redemption. Maybe Emily Blunt, though, would be another one of those. I'm with you. I would have liked to see her get a nomination ahead of Streep even. Laura Dern, I think it's indicative of her talent and the impact of the scenes she's in in Wild that she even got a nomination when she's in that movie for all of about eight minutes. Hmm. But maybe a surprise, maybe you could even say it doesn't make any sense, but after seeing the movie recently, I get it. I get it. Laura Dern is just that talented of an actress. So I do think it comes down to Emma Stone versus Arquette. And it's funny with Stone. I think she's incredibly talented. Wouldn't mind if she won it here, even though I do think Arquette's going to win. And Arquette is ultimately my pick for who should win. The thing about Stone that's interesting is I think they'll probably play that rant she has with her father. That's her big Oscar moment. And it's funny. That's the one scene of hers in the whole film I'm not a fan of. And it, of course, for me, can all be put on. The director, it's the camera, Alejandro that's Gonzalez, the problem, and Yardu that extreme close-up yeah. that turns her into this sort of grotesque mm-hmm. monster when she's already big and doesn't need the camera to emphasize that anymore. It's her quieter moments that are much better in that film, hmm. and I think that's her only false moment in the whole movie. So it does come down to Arquette, and I think we touched on this a little bit, Josh, when we were reviewing the role of Apu and, and the Unvanquished, the Satyajit Ray films in terms of mothers and the kind of contradictions they embody. And I, I think about my mom. Um, I think it's probably true for most of us. We didn't grow up in a Woody Allen comedy, you know, the castrating Zionist. Usually (laughs) they're a little bit more complex than that, full of those contradictions, enigmatic, impossible to fully grasp the burden of being a mother. And Arquette somehow embodies that burden, I think, in this film. And despite what you guys are saying, I don't know, I guess you're right. It ends on kind of a down note with her, but that's... That's the beauty of no, it. It, the, feel, it the feels movie's legit. Lament, it, it, it sure, feels the movie's entire legit. lament is her lament. Yeah, it, oh, it feels powerful. totally legitimate. You to would me. It really not does. want it to end with her giving him a smiley hug. <laughs> no. Absolutely. No, okay. but but like a lot of a lot of great things in that movie, it's just it just lands where it lands. It's it, it, it's almost just like the coin tosses of life mm-hmm. every day. You know, you just don't know which way it's going to land, and you know it's played beautifully. So you know, it's no, I, I don't really question it. it. Just it was just personally difficult. Yeah, know? yeah. Well, like the Oscars, we're saving the big category. Categories for the end. Our picks for actor, actress, director, and picture are all next. Stay with us. Well, water is wine back on blue, my 
Last year loving expired While I lay close to you As the lace on the shoe And that's when I knew We were hardwired Well, you bumbled like bees And I'm boiled like the seas While you lived Where no one would follow sounds of shaky graves what better an artist to feature on a show where we're highlighting unforgiven josh than shaky graves aka texas-based musician alejandro rose garcia from his 2014 album and the war came he heads out on an extended tour at the end of the month that somehow misses chicago in march he heads to new zealand and film spotting far east australia then back to the states for dates in the southeast northeast and canada more information at shakygraves.com let's get to our donations and some thank you some kind comments from our listeners we start with two donors mary jane in palo alto california lear in alameda california and a new silver club donation comes to us from ben in eugene oregon Thanks for continuing to provide thoughtful film talk and lots of fun week after week. One belated suggestion for top five rescue scenes? How about from Nick Park's clay animation film, A Close Shave? While there are actually a couple of great rescue scenes in there, my favorite is the brief sequence in which the dog Gromit, imprisoned with tears glistening on his face, completes a jigsaw puzzle at just the right time to be rescued. The visual storytelling humor and timing come together so well. Sounds great. I'm not familiar with that yeah, one. Yeah, th- that's a lot of fun. But it's a short, so I don't know. Are, are would those eligible. be eligible? Yeah. I well, guess we do Buster we Keaton shorts sometimes. Whatever so, rules we yeah. want here on Film Spotting, Josh. Jim Polini from Bethpage, New York, also a new Silver Club donor, though also a monthly donor. He says, I just finished the Film Spotting archive. Wow. And wanted to take this opportunity to augment my regular monthly donation with a bonus $50 contribution as a way of saying thanks. That's another rule we can break. You can donate. <laughs> multiple ways. <laughs> That's true. A cross-country move, a few knee surgeries, endless hours spent commuting, and the Film Spotting Archive helped me get through it all. Thanks for producing a consistently engaging and entertaining show and for your commitment to discuss films outside of the mainstream multiplex fair. My favorite moment from the archive? Episode 220, Michael Phillips demonstrating his knowledge of Italian music tempo theory by characterizing the fairy scene from The Dark Knight as being too legato when it really needed to be more staccato. That's why Phillips shows up. <laughs> exactly. <It is. laughs> Some new $5 a month donors. Thank you very much for that kind contribution, Jim. Jeffrey in Centerville, Virginia, a new subscriber. And Aaron in Decorah, Iowa. Decorah, Iowa, the home Josh of what college? Pizza Hut. There is a Pizza Hut and a Pizza Ranch there. Pizza Ranch. That's what I meant. Sorry. Oh, man. I just insulted all the Pizza Uh Ranch fans by confusing the two. I'm thinking of Luther College. The lead singer in my band, one of my best friends since I was in fourth grade, went to Luther. One of my best friends from high school, Greg Wagner, went to Luther. So a lot of Iowa connections there. Thank you, Aaron, for listening and donating. We also got a $5 a month donation from James in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. James, who he may have sent in this donation just because I butchered his last name a couple weeks ago when we read a donation that was in his honor. And 
what are you going to do? It's spelled K-U-S-T. I think I called him Cust. And? It's Coost. Of course it's Coost. So so he's donating for a correction. Well, I think so, but that's not in his comments, thankfully, Josh. I was surprised a couple of weeks ago to hear my name read on the show for the very first time. My good friend Caroline made a donation to the show in my name, and the kind note she wrote as an addendum did not go unnoticed. As soon as I heard my own name called, I knew it was long past time to finally pay the dealer, joining a long tradition of film spotting loyalists. I add my praise of the show to hers. I've been listening since early high school. Good Lord, has it been a decade? Well before I was even allowed to see many of the films you reviewed. Your weekly debates, discussions, and recommendations got me through my paper route days and have been nothing short of critical in the development of my personal cinematic taste, as well as desire to discuss and share movies with others. Man, back when I had a paper route, I would just have to listen to Quiet Riot on my Walkman. Did you really have a paper route? Oh, of course. Wow. <laughs> Small town, Iowa. There you go, Josh. Finally, we close with a gold level donation from Philip Schmidt right here in Chicago. He says, I started listening around the time of your best of 2000 show at the end of 2010. I think it's the one Slate recently honored on its best podcast list and was immediately hooked. Since then, I've listened every week and his life and work took me from Chicago to France to Cleveland and now back to Chicago again. My appreciation for cinema has only grown deeper and richer. I enjoy your insightful discussions and they often spin off into further discussions with friends, co-workers and my girlfriend who while not being particularly into movies still gets excited to sit down and listen to an episode on a film we've both just seen we're bringing people together josh it's what we do long way of saying thank you for the precise program you all put so much obvious care into producing well thank you philip yay us and our sincere thanks to all of our new donors all of our past donors and everyone who supports the show so sit by the stew. You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam, Josh, and Michael Phillips. We're sharing our picks for who will win and who should win the Academy Awards coming up on Sunday, February 22nd. We're going to kick things off here in this segment with Best Actor, the nominees, Steve Carell, one of four nominees in this category playing a real person, John DuPont, Bradley Cooper as Chris Kyle in American Sniper, Benedict Cumberbatch as Alan Turing in The Imitation Game, Eddie Redmayne is Stephen Hawking in The Theory of Everything, and the lone, unreal person, Michael Keaton, very real himself. <laughs> he is playing Riggan Thompson in Birdman, or I gotta get it out there, The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. Because <laughs> Thanks for it's, clarifying. It's kind of fun to say. So, those are your five candidates. Michael, who's going to win it? Uh, I mispredicted this one the day of. I thought, well, Michael Keaton, he's kind of winning a lot of awards for it. Da, 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 da. Now that it looks like Birdman is going to unfairly take uh, awards for direction and possibly best picture, I suspect it'll go, uh, in the cosmic scheme of things, I think it'll go Eddie Redmayne for Theory of Everything. And and actually, it's a really good performance. And you know, the movie is what it is. It's a pretty good biopic uh, from a director who's done wonderful work. James Marsh is, I mean, I love Project Nim, Man yeah, on Wire. Man on Wire, fantastic. And yeah. he's a real visual stylist. And I kind of misjudged Redmayne. I never really thought much of his, ta- I thought he was sort of a promising b- talent. Uh, I never, I, I think I think he was the victim of some okay material for a long time. Films like, you know, My Week with Marilyn. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh you know, he certainly did well with uh, both the song and his hair in Les Mis. <laughs> uh, not, not a film I liked, but 
I think Redmayne, is, you see him in The Theory of Everything, and you think, okay, uh, classically trained British actor, fantastic technical work, but almost, you know, all in the ballpark of something like Daniel Day-Lewis's work in My Left Foot, where the, the technical work is so rigorous and so extreme, and yet the performance inside it all is really kind of human and subtle and mm-hmm. good. It's, yeah, I, I, I can see why he might win. I, But... You know, who, who do I wish was yeah. going to win Best Actor? Uh, Ray Fiennes for the Grand Budapest <laughs> well, Hotel. Well, no kidding. We're with you on that. <laughs> he didn't get a nomination. That's not going to happen. Did you guys realize that? He did not get a nomination. <laughs> it took us a few days to get over it, but yes. <laughs> no, <laughs> so, he's, he's fantastic in that, right? I, it, I'm with you, yeah. but you know, And also, you, you find out that Johnny Depp was supposed to play that part originally oh, in Budapest Hotel. I he, had not heard I would have liked the movie even less he than I been, did. He would have been, no, I actually think he would have been fine because Anderson is such a rigorously controlled you know, I think the performance would have mm. been fine, but so Rafe, he chose he Mordecai instead of uh, he did. That's Hotel. exactly what no, happened. No, he would have no. layered on the cork, which Ray Fiennes doesn't even know how to play corky. It, it just comes out in right. Anderson's direction in the screenplay, and he doesn't need to act. I'm, it. I, I think that's a good point. And, and, and Fiennes, I mean, I, I'm I'm really kind of crazy for Budapest. I, I think a second viewing of Grand Budapest really was kind of a revelation. I really liked it the first time. Second time through, I thought this thing is in the top five and ended up being my second favorite film of the mm. year. An Andersonian-esque artful dodge to the who should yeah, win Best Yeah, so who's actor, your Michael. should? Who's your should? Oh, my should? <laughs> He's trying yeah. to force of you. Of these five? Of these five. Meh. Redmayne. <laughs> okay. Okay. Josh. Well, I think I'm going to say it might go to Keaton still. I mean, it's, think, it's yeah, the whole might, comeback thing. Might, it's the might, career yep, thing. Yep. And I, I would say there's nobody really to challenge him in this category because the others, are they're all just, they're young enough to get other chances. I mean, Redmayne is really still pretty much out of nowhere. And they yep. might say, you know, great performance, but you'll be back here again someday. Carell's performance, I think, had its fair share of detractors despite the nomination few of them might be in this room here tonight Absolutely. so i think that's going to work against him uh, should win keaton has won me over it when i revisited birdman and watched this again i mean this is a choice partly out of the process of elimination cooper for me is probably really the only other nominee that i'd consider to go with for my own personal pick but Keaton's performance struck me as more sure-footed than mm. i at first thought when i watched birdman and the key, I think, is that he's playing a character who's flailing, right? And for, for the first time through, I was trying to figure out, is Keaton flailing here? And, and that was some of the fun for it, is to see him out there on that wire. But really, you know, his comic timing is very purposeful and really impeccable in that film. So I, I do think it's a really strong performance. Okay. Do you really think you'll be ready for opening tomorrow? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, well, I mean, previews are... Pretty much a train wreck. We can't seem to get through a performance without a raging fire or a raging hard on. I'm broke. I'm not sleeping, like, you know, at all. And uh, this play kind of starting to feel like a miniature, deformed version of myself that just keeps following me around and, like, hitting me in the balls with a, like, a tiny little hammer. I'm sorry, what was the question? Well, I'm with Michael that Eddie Redmayne is going to win it. It just makes sense. Not only the degree of difficulty to it, but the fact that he's it's playing a real young, person. Though, don't you think? No, I think I think he's going to take it. And I did just finally see The Theory of Everything. I'm not a fan of the movie, hmm. despite my love for James Marsh as a director. And I joked on Letterboxd, I appropriated that old 
Gene Siskel line that Roger Ebert used to like to trot out from time to time. Is the movie more interesting than a documentary of the same actors having lunch? And I would say the answer is no. (laughs) Beyond that, I also found myself wishing I had just watched a documentary about Stephen Hawking. I think it would have been a lot more insightful and more entertaining. Eddie Redmayne, though, certainly is not the problem. I'm with you completely, Michael, on the performance and why it works. I didn't see any of that mugging in Jupiter Ascending, which we all saw together. And <laughs> oh, my Josh, God. Josh, <laughs> you, you talked about during our review last week, it almost made you it, rethink. It tarnished. Yeah, was he that me, good? His in, theory of everything. Theory of everything. Performance. It, didn't, it didn't tarnish anything <laughs> for me. And it, it is it the is, best. He's giving the best performance that Catherine Hepburn never gave. <laughs> in, wow. In uh, Jupiter Ascending. <laughs> it's obviously with these types of performances playing a real person, it's cliche to say that a good actor or a good actress disappears into the role. But I really was not aware at any point of any forced kind of imitation or impersonation. And I think it says something about Redmayne's performance that for the majority of the film, he's not silent, you know, as he eventually becomes the majority of the film. He has to dramatically affect a voice, dramatically affect physical movement. And yet he he says so much more doing so much less even than Steve Carell as John DuPont in Foxcatcher. I think think Keaton's achievement in Birdman is is really more about just intelligently providing a contrast to the whole movie going on around him. I mean, it's such a it's such a kind of a show-offy stunt in a way and and I, 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 I find it the most frustrating film on this whole list that I can still recommend. Hmm. I mean, that's how I feel about Birdman. I thought that film deflated by 50% on a second viewing Hmm. just because I don't think it's got anything in it, but it's such fun to see it when it's, when the top is spinning and just as the whole thing unfurls. And I think Keaton's, it's a good, it's a good observation, Josh. And they just, a lot of, a lot of it is I think Keaton's own, somewhat evident panic about keeping up with the the hmm. choreography of the whatever take he's in sure. and and finding his place in it but and keeping uh, up with that norton as, yeah, as you yeah, said yeah. Yeah. no and and i mean the limit the big limitation of Birdman, i think is that it's this the script it just simply puts Riggan thompson um as the kind of dramatically kind of inert center of of a series of people monologuing at him and you know and that's and that Keaton if Keaton didn't feel like a relaxed and comfortable screen presence and kind of a guy you can root for under these circumstances I think the movie the movie would really just feel like the stunt aspect suffocates the whole thing right from the Mm -hmm. beginning and yeah you know I don't love the movie but um it's it you know, for what it is, Keaton works really well in him. He does, and that's a nice segue because even though I think Redmayne's going to win it, for me, in terms of who I want to see win, it comes down to Michael Keaton mm. and Bradley Cooper in American Sniper. My overall feelings for that movie don't really apply to Cooper's performance. I, I, uh, same with me. I yeah. love how internalized it is. Those demons, he barely blinks yep. or forms words sometimes. Those grunts are really effective, and it's so internal that it draws you in rather than doing what those types of performances can sometimes do, which is really push you away and just be boring. He's never it's, boring it's great, in American it's, Sniper. You know what it is? It's great between the lines yeah. acting. It's yeah. really a lot A lot of what isn't even scripted. He's sort of pulling out, you know, out of his own instincts really well. But maybe to my surprise, honestly, I'm going with Keaton because mm. I was a little bit hard on him during our review. You are but getting it's on mainly the because bandwagon, It's mainly you? because I don't think he really acts all that well opposite Ed Norton in a lot of those scenes. But... It also could be the nostalgia factor. I was such a big fan of Michael Keaton in the 80s that I would like to see him get some recognition here. But really, it was because of that high wire act 
that you mentioned. And also something I read, uh, and I've mentioned him before, the critic Kevin B. Lee. I don't know if you looked at his Fandor. He does the Keyframe blog there, and he does these video essays where he really gets into about seven minutes long, but he looks at each one of the nominees in these big categories and really breaks them down in fascinating ways. And his pick for best actor was Michael Keaton. He also loves Birdman overall, certainly a lot more than I do, but it came down to Keaton and Cooper for him as well. And he said, I'm torn between these two exceptionally complex performances that seem to work in opposite ways. Keaton takes what is basically a two-dimensional jerk and gives him sympathetic depth, and Cooper brings layers of darkness to a hero's facade. In the end, the advantage goes to Keaton because he has so much coming at him that he has to navigate, and not just scene by scene, but second by second. And it makes every moment of this performance worth watching closely. I think he's right, yeah, and I, well I think put. that's maybe the only reason why I would go back and watch Birdman is actually to just watch moment to moment how Michael Keaton navigates all of that. So if you want to see more of those, Kevin Bealey, great stuff, like I said, at fandor.com slash keyframe, and we'll link to those video essays in our show notes. So I'm on the Keaton train here. Unfortunately, like I said, not sure he's going to win. Don't think he probably will, but would be my pick. That's going to be a very, that would be a, if, if only we had access to the envelopes because that's going to be an extremely close race, be, I think, between Keaton yeah. and Redmayne. An extraordinary theory. <laughs> Thank you. So what next? Prove it. Prove with a single equation that time had a beginning. Wouldn't that be nice, Professor? A one simple, elegant equation to explain everything. Yes, it would. Actress, the nominees are Marion Cotillard for Two Days, One Night, Felicity Jones for The Theory of Everything, Julianne Moore, Still Alice, Rosamund Pike, Gone Girl, and Reese Witherspoon in Wild. Michael, is it going to take between now and Oscar Sunday, Julianne Moore murdering someone to not win. <laughs> uh, if it's vehicular homicide, I think it would be one thing. If, if it's really like a knife to the, somebody's throat, yeah. yeah, then she'd lose. She's out. Okay. She'd lose. Uh, I, I think, I, yes, I think uh, Julianne Moore will win. Of these five, and it's a very good list, you know, we don't have to remind anybody that that all five of these people have to work twice as hard to get half as much good work because of the the limited pool of roles available to women of any age, level of talent, whatever. But Marianne Cotillard's work in Two Days, One Night, I think, was for her kind of what, – what you're getting in that performance, I think, is a little of what you're getting in Reese Witherspoon's work in Wild. You're getting – People who are just learning how to, how little they they can do and still be extremely effective in these very low key naturalistic parameters and and it's always no matter what kind of actor or actress you are you have this insecurity in you that says I I can't possibly get away with that little the director keeps telling me to do less or you know don't do that or just less 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 keep it simpler 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 David Fincher the way he always he's talked about beating the acting out of a performance by dozens and dozens of r- repetitive takes mm-hmm. even when he's got a decent sh- take he just wants the Jesse Eisenberg you know talked about it among other actors who's worked in the Fincher film just what happens after 90 takes you're exhausted and you're 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 doing less than nothing in terms of interpretation you're just simply you're there, you know, and then and that maybe that's the moment of truth. And I think in a, in a less brutal way, I think Cotillard in Two Days One Night is really figuring out 
what, you know, how I'm a, I'm a movie star, um, and I have a, I have a pretty big technical arsenal now. Now, now I have to throw it all away and just sort of do these scenes for keeps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I, I'm a fly on the wall of my own scene. You know, that's really kind of that's kind of the perform. I, I like her performance very much. In yeah, this film. me too. Josh, yeah, it will be Julianne Moore. I mean, she has five nominations, hasn't won yet. So there you go. I don't think there's a consensus pick to challenge her either. So that makes it uh, easier to go with more. I didn't see still Alice, though. That's uh, the other one I didn't get to before we recorded tonight. So my choice among the others would be between Witherspoon and Cotillard. I, I mm. also, Michael, found those to be similar type performances, not only in what they're doing, but how they're serving the film. I liked both of those films, but I think without those performances, they might not have worked uh, hardly at all, actually. I think those, those actresses mm. are both carrying their films. So it's close between those two, but I'm going with Cotillard. Well, it's funny that you say that they carry those films because one of the things Kevin B. Lee does over at Fandor is he breaks down the actual amount of screen time that they get, and Cotillard, Moore, and Witherspoon all appear in at least 88% of their movies. There you it's go. like 88 to 94%. Well, that's some good time. math. There that's you go. Math, yeah. Felicity Jones only in 47% of The Theory of Everything, and Rosamund Pike only 39% of Gone Girl. But see, that that mm. is key. That's why, to your point, Michael, these are full lead performances that yeah. we don't always get. How often do we have to talk about the best actress mm-hmm. performances and they're playing second fiddle to the film? And, and so I think the Witherspoon and Cotillard performances for me especially are, are crucial in that way. Yeah. Of the five, Jones in Theory of Everything is my least favorite. I just think she's overall a talented actress, but she just hits the most obvious notes scene to scene, really doesn't give Jane Wilde Hawking any kind of inner life. And Rosamund Pike. I am a fan of the performance, but I'm bonkers for that film, of course, Gone Girl, my second favorite movie of the year. And I don't know why she isn't just a slam dunk pick for this category for me. It's one of the things I need to revisit with that movie. There's an icy calculation to her performance that I think puts me off, even as that's the whole point of that character. And it makes sense for her to be that way. So, like I said, something I need to revisit. But I think that those other three, Moore, Witherspoon, and Cotillard, are powerhouse performances for what they easily could have been these kind of very self-pitying suffering for the audience kind of performances they're all kind of victims to some extent or another marion cotillard is in a situation where she has to basically beg her co-workers to not choose a bonus over her job and julianne moore is suffering from early onset alzheimer's with witherspoon and wild she inflicts most of the damage on herself even though i think you could obviously make the case that the inciting incident there was something she couldn't really control involving her mother. And I do think Witherspoon is really good. There's a certain aloofness to her character that allows her to kind of isolate herself from everyone else in the film. She doesn't care about being endearing. And I didn't like her, of course, at all in Inherent Vice, a movie I loved, but I think she's really good here in this lead role. I do think it's going to be more, as you guys have said, in terms of who will win. And I don't think it's a coincidence, or maybe it is a complete coincidence, that the two people who are going to win Best Actor and Best Actress, both have scenes where their characters basically give Oscar speeches. It happens <laughs> a lot. in those yeah. two films where their characters get to sort of neatly package their stories for the audience into these little nuggets of wisdom that will help make us all better people. In The Theory of Everything, it's at the end of the film, Stephen Hawking has this answer to a question where he says, well, I don't believe in God, but here are my guiding principles. And of course, in Still Alice, Julianne Moore has a speech she gives about how she has to live in the moment. We all need to live in the moment. It's all 
I really can do. And so those those moments are there, but I think that maybe isn't her overall best moment in that film. She has a lot of really good moments and I mean, just if, if has Ju- a dignity. If Julianne yeah. Moore wins, it'll be it'll be her uh, Ascend of a Woman award. Yeah. You know, you know it's basically like Pacino winning. She's had better. For, yeah. Overall, she's certainly been in better films. Yeah, I think I would yeah. at least she's argue done, that. Yeah, she's yeah. good there, but for me, in terms of who should win, it would be Cotillard. I think that it makes me think of Keaton in Birdman a little bit, even though the shots aren't obviously one take every single scene, but there's a compressed intensity to it, certainly in terms of the time frame in that Dardenne's film where it's a weekend span. She's going to reach out to these 16 coworkers. And I remember as it started going thinking, wow, I like the Dardenne's a lot and I like Cotillard a lot, but 16 of these, this is going to get redundant fast. All of these encounters door to door with these people and she's going to get redundant fast. How can't she be? Because she's going to be just going through the same motions with these characters, but you watch it and you see that you can't predict person to person, moment to moment, how Cotillard is going to respond. She's on a little bit of a high wire herself, I think, in this film. And for me, of these performances, it's the one that feels the most alive, the most moment to moment where she's just acting and reacting to what she's being given. Yeah, Two Days, One Night's a weird, it's such, such an odd film because uh, when it was accepted into the Cannes Film Festival, uh, the Terry Fermeau, the the head of the festival, said it's really a Belgian Western. <laughs> it's it's really just, it's high, it's high noon, you know? Yeah. I mean, this, this character's got a limited amount of time to basically argue a case over and over with various... You know, and townsfolk in high noon, and mm-hmm. her, her solar panel factory coworkers, and the other one, and the other. Of course, the other inspiration is Twelve Angry Men, because it's 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 all about rhetorical strategy and just mm-hmm. and just appealing to people's better natures. And and no, it's a weirdly absorbing picture. Yeah. you'd think it would just. It just sounds like monotonous as hell, you know, yeah. when you hear it described. But it's it's much better. Than I definitely was surprised by the American flag in the climactic scene. <laughs> that was <laughs> not odd. expecting that in Belgium. It was weird. Yeah. <laughs> Best director is our next Oscar category here on Film Spotting. Wes Anderson for The Grand Budapest Hotel. Alejandro Gonzalez in Yaritu for Birdman. Richard Linklater, Boyhood. Bennett Miller for Foxcatcher, and the wonderfully named Morton Tildum for The Imitation Game. Michael. This cheeses me off already. I mean, <laughs> Inerado is going to win Best Director and, of course, should win. This is the toughest category for me of all because I love Boyhood was my number one. I think Luke Lander's achievements are fantastic. And I think Wes Anderson's work in Grand Budapest Hotel is equally great in a different direction. It's the difference, the big split here, guys is invisible direction and visible right. direction. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. And that's yep. it. That's it. I mean, and I, in the visible direction category, <laughs> uh, Inaradu made the most visibly directed film of the year, and I think the but the best example of it was Anderson because it's just it, it's him working his particular style in a in a really fruitful uh and I think I think maybe not not for the first time but in a in a really marked way it's emotionally resonant for once a lot of it's just finds being so good too i mean hmm. the whole cast but um yeah i i man i i'd love it if wes anderson didn't just win best screenplay this year but you know that that my my will win is unfortunately inaradu and i have to add the unfortunately and uh and i hope it's linkletter okay yeah, I'm with you on that, Michael. I think Inirido will win for Best Director. I mean, that that single-take device, it's just it's going to be irresistible, right? A, a voter can look at that, just hang their vote right on that and say anyone who pulls this off, they, right. they deserve the award. Whether or not that's the case should win, I mean, yeah, do I have to say? Morton Tilden. Anderson. No. <laughs> I mean, uh, and I think, you know, 
there is a slight chance of this happening when you think about it, that Wes Anderson could win because the the best picture and best director, those don't always match up. And I do think if voters are ever going to it, it's the most directed, as you're saying. And so it's I think in a good way, obviously, but it is one where you can clearly point to like Inurido and say, oh, I see what he's doing here and I like what he's doing. So um, there's a slight chance there that I could be very happy that Wes Anderson will win Best Director. I mean, it does. Grand Budapest has nine nominations, which ties with Birdman. So it's definitely in the running there. And, and maybe maybe it'll be Anderson's year. And that is you're saying your pick. That's for who, who I should would win. like to see. Yeah. And if, if I had to put money on it, though, I would say in your redo. Well, this one was easy for me because I'd like to pick a best director who made a film I really, really enjoyed. And four of the nominees didn't. The only one who did was Richard Linklater, who happened to make what I felt was the best film of the year. So he's going to get my vote in terms of who should win. As far as who will win, I'm going to say that even though everything you guys said, Michael, especially citing recent history, and as we talk about the technical proficiency of a film like Birdman's going to wow members, and you think they're going to go for that in the directing category, the reality is, I think, jumping ahead a little bit, Birdman's probably going to win Best Picture. Mm. And I think that voters may split that a little bit and give Best Director to Linklater. That's, that's I what think, I'm, I'm actually pretty good. Okay, yes. so I yeah. think they're going to do that. And I Although, think, I, I really hope it's the other way around. I hope I hope they, you know... I'm with you. Yeah. That would be great if they did. <laughs> yeah. But I think Linklater is going to maybe actually win Best Director. And they're going to look at something like the 12 years thing and recognize that as a technical achievement as well, devoting yourself to a film and a but project will they that consider much. that a directing achievement? I don't know. That That's just the question. I, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that, but I, I just don't know. Okay, best picture. We have eight nominees, American Sniper, Birdman, Boyhood, The Grand Budapest Hotel, The Imitation Game, Selma, The Theory of Everything, and Whiplash. We've kind of hit on this, but... Where are you at, guys, in terms of what you think will and should win? Michael. So the morning of the nominations, I predicted it would be Boyhood, and I think I'm already eating it on that one. I think I th- <sighs> Damn it. I, it'll probably go Birdman, and it should go Boyhood. And I'd be, I'd be thrilled as well if it went to either Grand Budapest or Whiplash, which is about a 90 to 1 against in terms of the odds makers. Whiplash doesn't have a chance, but... Uh, I'd, I'd love it if, <laughs> you know, I'd love it if that or Budapest won. But uh, yeah, Boyhood's still my number one. So yeah, mm. that, that's what I want. So looking at the front runners here, I would say American Snipers just become too divisive, even even though it has considerable support. Their voters will probably just shy away from that. Boyhood, I I just think it's too humble for the Oscars. That's entirely to its credit. But mm-hmm. this is not the sort of movie that Hollywood wants to hold up as our best. They they just It's, it's they, as, and you're right. It's as it's as much of a foreign film as them it, it's give, an giving independent like a foreign film. language. It's a foreign film. film. Yeah, it's yeah. not an insider pick. The Imitation Game Theory of Everything, they'll they'll split the Anglophile vote. So that leaves for me Birdman. I, I just think it does have that element, which doesn't bother me as much as it bothers other people, of stroking the artist's ego. Mm-hmm. That's going to feel pretty good to voters. So I can see them going that way. My pick, the only one of these that was on my top 10 list was Grand Budapest Hotel. I'm partial to Wes Anderson movies. Yeah, you are. 
We've certainly noted that over the years. I only had two of these that were in my top eight or top ten. Whiplash was my number eight. Boyhood was my number one. So obviously I'm leaning towards Boyhood. That's my pick for who should win, who will. I do think it's going to be Birdman. It's just so ready-made for Oscar in terms of, as we said, being an obvious technical achievement and also... I'm sorry to say, oozing empty profundity, like me (laughs) most weeks here on the show. Boyhood is, though, the technical achievement that you wouldn't even be aware of necessarily if you didn't know the story or if it wasn't pointed out to you. I've heard some people going into this film not knowing the backstory and sort of watching it and being in awe when they finally realize, wait a second, they didn't really cast someone who looks that much like the (laughs) earlier versions of Mason. And I went back and looked at my notes, and I did have this weird effect where I forgot... At times, I had to remind myself that we were watching these moments in the actual past. Like, I thought I was looking at Ethan Hawke pretending to be younger in 2002, but it's really Ethan Hawke in 2002. And in terms of lessons to live by, I talked about those speeches and Still Alice and the Theory of Everything. I think Boyhood is the one that actually has lessons to live by or really consider Mason's closing dialogue. And it does give us with Arquette and her last scene, those kind of harsh truths about our lives in Mm -hmm. terms of wanting to be more. And that's the movie that should get the recognition for being the best picture of the year. Unfortunately, it's not going to. You don't think it's going to? No, I'm going with Birdman because I am cynical and expect the worst. But did you did you predict that, uh, let's say, the morning of the nominations? Or, no. Or, or, or no, I didn't really realize, just since I didn't realize at the time since. that Birdman had this kind of momentum behind it. Yeah. It seems to have now in what I've picked up. When you look at English language pictures that have won best, uh, you know, won the top prize, the best picture Oscar, that have made comparably kind of like a modest amount of money like Birdman, you can look at films that didn't that didn't win, like There Will Be Blood, you know, uh, where you think, okay, if if you're really going to forget about popularity for for a minute hmm. with, with an English with a, with a homegrown <laughs> picture, you know, that's the kind of thing you can really hold your head up on. I think Birdman is just like well, that that's a, a, good a, point. Medi- a medium entertaining. Beautifully made, as you say, kind of empty profundity with mm-hmm. a, with a, with a cast that basically bails it out every second. And h- history know? shows that box office does matter when it comes to it does I think it's to, more, the, to the best picture nominees. I mean, they yeah. they want to be a recognition of success as a business too. So you know, maybe that puts American well, Sniper back in the game. Then? American Sniper, possibly, possibly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If Boyhood had been made exactly the way it was made, but but by a much dumber director with that was <laughs> where all where the crisis had been really sort of amped up within the studio. And, System. Yeah, well, yeah, right. Okay, we'll even do that. And then the film makes, let's say, seventy million on a tiny budget, as opposed to thirty or forty. I think we'd be talking about more of a sure thing to win. But I think you're right, Josh. I think there's something about this film that, to most people, uh, especially if they're in the industry, it's it's as foreign as the Dardans working in Belgium on two days, one night. You know. Yeah. Well, those are our 2015 Oscar picks. Please send your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. We will have a little bit of bonus film spotting. If you have the film spotting app, all the info you need about that is available at filmspotting.net. If you click on apps, we'll have a little bit more Oscar talk, including the animated film category and the screenwriting awards. So again, filmspotting.net if you want to learn more about our app offerings. You can always leave us a voicemail at 312-264-0744 or find us on Twitter at Filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on Film. Michael's at Phillips Tribune. Yes. Phillips Tribune. And we are also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Filmspotting. Or at Filmspotting.net. Of course, you can also find 10 years of show archives. We're less than 
really two weeks away from the actual 10-year anniversary of the show. Pretty remarkable. And again, we always have the film spotting poll question asking you to vote for the Oscar outcome you'd most like to see. Out in limited release this weekend, the Gene Siskel Film Center, The Sweet Blood of Jesus. This is Spike Lee's low-budget remake of the cult black exploitation vampire movie Ganja and Hess. Also I have available to check that VOD. out. <laughs> you are really curious about this, and you probably should be. We've talked about Ganja and Hess on the show, and the fact that it's Spike Lee. The Music Box is showing a special Valentine's weekend screening of The Princess Bride. How can Very you go fun. wrong there? Also out. Timbuktu, the Oscar-nominated film for Best Foreign Language Film from Mauritania. It's about a rural family disturbed by jihadists. And on VOD, that may be of interest, The Last Five Years, an adaptation of the off-Broadway musical written and directed by Richard LeGravenace. It stars Anna Kendrick. And the rewrite, I'm going to give you some titles here. Two Weeks Notice, Music and Lyrics, Did You Hear About the Morgans, and now this film. What do they have in common? They all star Hugh Grant and are directed by Mark Lawrence. There you go. Who knew? Is that all we need to know? They've got about another this? collaboration. This is a film about an Oscar-winning writer who leaves Hollywood to teach screenwriting at a college on the East Coast. It stars Marissa Tomei, Allison Janney, and J.K. Simmons. That's a great supporting cast. You know, maybe maybe, maybe there's a reason we haven't <laughs> maybe heard much we about it, it yet. I, uh, you know. Yeah, out in wide release, The Kingsman, The Secret Service. Michael, you just came from that screening. Do you want to give a very quick take on it? No. Okay. You can read it. You can read it in the Chicago <laughs> Tribune. Stars Colin That's Firth. That's a non-tease. Yeah, and directed by Matthew Vaughn. Of course, the big Valentine's movie, Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, tomorrow night. The question, will people come out for a film in public for a book they read in private or read in private? <laughs> we'll find out because it's very possible that next week on the show we'll actually talk about Fifty Shades of Grey. Is that where we're going? We haven't decided yet. Why not? Okay. Why not? Why not? It's, it's part of the zeitgeist. Do we have <laughs> yes. to wrestle with Fifty Shades of Grey? Michael, what say you? Uh, uh, you know, I'm going to be there tomorrow night. I've been I've been preparing. <laughs> I'm so excited. I, I have been preparing for a long time. You read the book film. for the 48th time in yeah, preparation. For, and let me just say, my ass still hurts from all my preparation. That's all. That's all I'm going to say. I love it. Well, Sam, our co-producer, does have two great top five ideas. He came up with for a Fifty Shades of Grey tie. And one of them is basically the top five movies we would have skipped if we didn't review them. Okay. And I, I can definitely come up with a good How about, top did you hear about the Morgans? Yes. Since you just mentioned <laughs> no, it. No, I, I just skipped that one. The other one, pretty good, top five non-sex scenes in movies mostly about sex. Ah. That is good. That'll be a little bit tougher. So <laughs> we'll see what we do. We're open to any suggestions. You know how to reach us on social media and email feedback at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week, it's Shaky Graves from the 2014 album And the War Came. More information is at shakygraves.com. Michael, thanks so much for sharing your Oscar Thank picks you. again this year. What are you up to over at chicagotribune.com slash movies? Slash movies. Slash movies. Talking about lots of things, but uh, among others, there's an interesting film at the Siskel Film Center, a part of their Iranian series called Manuscripts Don't Burn. And uh, for anybody who saw the film, this is not a film about... Mm -hmm. Panahi? Yes, yes, made by the the Iranian director who was under house arrest. 
Uh, this is a similar kind of achievement. So uh, check it out. It's good. Plus your 3,000-word review of Kingsman, The Secret Service. That will yes. be up there, too. Yes. Looking forward to it. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. We'll see you in a month, hopefully. Okay, guys. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.